Although federal and state races are long finished, election season is not quite over for Evanston. The city's municipal elections are less than a month away, with the mayor, clerk, and all nine aldermanic seats up for grabs. Mayor Steve Haggerty decided not to run for re-election last October, leaving the mayoral race open for newcomers. On Thursday, January 21st, I interviewed former state senator and candidate for governor Daniel Biss, who is one of three people on the ballot for mayor. The other two candidates, Lori Keenan and Sebastian Knowles, will be interviewed as well before the February 23rd primary election. This is the full interview, lightly edited for time and clarity. So thank you for being here. Really appreciate it. Um, if you could introduce yourself uh, with your name, your age, uh, and what ward of Evanston you live in. All right. My name is Daniel Biss. Uh, I am 43 years old, uh, and I live in the sixth ward of Evanston. Starting off with kind of just your background, um, how long have you lived in Evanston, and uh, what's what's your personal connection to the town? I moved here in 2006, so I guess almost 15 years ago now. Um, I, my wife Karen and I got married that year, and she was just about to begin a PhD program in history at Northwestern. Um, so we moved to Evanston. We bought a house on Central Street uh, where we still live now with our two kids who are in fifth and seventh grade in Evanston Public Schools. And um, so in addition to just being here, being married to someone who is a student at university, having two kids who are in public schools uh, and being generally speaking an active community member, I also served in the Illinois legislature for eight years where I represented, um, you know, for most of the time representing almost all of the city of Evanston uh, in the Illinois Senate with coming back to Evanston and, and running for local government, um, how, are, how are those past experiences in the Illinois legislature, as well as um, your run for governor, uh, how are those uh, informing your campaign and, and how would they inform uh, your time as mayor? I think there's two critical things. The first is just experience helps, right? I, I was blessed to have eight years in the legislature working hard to pass legislation. I had a lot of successes I'm really proud of. And quite frankly, I messed a bunch of stuff up that I learned a lot from. I learned how to build coalitions. I, I passed several pieces of legislation that people laughed at me when I started the project. I said, it's hopeless, it's impossible, but I was able to meticulously and carefully and strategically build a coalition to get it across the finish line. Obviously that skill comes in handy in any, any government context. Uh, and and I, I will look forward to using that skill in the, uh, uh, role of mayor working with Evanston City Council to assemble majorities on council to do ambitious, difficult, bold, and frankly, sometimes controversial things. The other thing is I lived up close uh, the interaction between state and municipal and federal government, seeing how the seamless collaboration between those governments can allow us to advance the cause and the values of our residents. And if those layers of government are not working effectively together, it can really harm our ability to get some, get things done. You know, I'm, I'm proud to have the support of Congresswoman Schakowsky and, and our state legislators and, and really looking forward to work together with them to actually make things happen in town. Yeah, so uh, if you don't mind, could you give um, an example of, of that kind of coalition building and, and I guess a, an experience that you learned from in, in your time in the legislature? Um, for sure. You know, I, I think about the legislation that I'm proudest of passing, which was the bill to create the Illinois Secure Choice Retirement uh, Savings Program. And this was something, an idea to give uh, the 
thousands, in fact, millions of Illinois residents who have no retirement plan at all and who are at risk of having nothing beyond social security to retirement to retire on, giving them a, a common sense, simple tool to save for retirement and have a shot at a dignified retirement. This was an idea that had been introduced in state capitals around the country and shot down everywhere because the Wall Street lobby and the insurance industry were against it. And when I took on that project, I remember the, the previous sponsor of that bill just laughing at me. She was like, this is hopeless, dude. I mean, if you want to pretend, you can pretend, but like, it's never, never going to happen. And we built this incredible group, you know, centered on advocates for uh, the poor and low-wage workers, people like the Shriver Center and the, you know, the Heartland Alliance and, and other organizations that focus on uh, supporting this population. But then we built out from there. We had meetings in church basements across the state and, and, and organized community members to push their own legislators. I drove all around the state meeting with editorial boards and legislators in their own, in their own communities. And we just gradually built support bit by bit. It took two full years. It took two full years and lots of different votes, not all of which were successful to get there, but we, we eventually got there. And now, now that we passed the bill, the program's up and running. There's tens of thousands of Illinois residents who have money in the bank today that they wouldn't have otherwise had. And guess what? A bunch of other states followed suit. States like California and Oregon and um, Vermont and Maryland and others have seen that we could do it and are following in our lead. And so, you know, that taught me that if you have an unlimited amount of patience to just push and push and push. You can sometimes even beat very well-funded, powerful lobbies just by out-hustling them, out-working them, having the facts on your side, and frankly, having a little bit of luck on your side too. So turning to uh, turning to is issues in Evanston, um, kind of starting broadly, um, Evanston continues to have uh, deeply rooted disparities in, in resources and support from the city government, and particularly in the city's communities of color and wards like the second, fifth, eighth, and ninth. Um, and this has led to uh, a fairly sizable number of residents being wary or, or distrustful uh, of efforts from the city to rectify these disparities. Um, as mayor, how, how would you help these communities grow and strengthen and how would you earn that trust back in, in the city government? Well, you have to take seriously the slogan that we assess every decision through an equity lens. I think it's great that our city government says that. Um, I think we need to live it more though. Uh, and there's a, a lot of concrete things that can be like, right? Cause that, that saying is pretty vague, right? And so I think we need to do a few things. We need to have a true citywide process. I think quite likely with an outside consultant that specializes in this work to have a public, process, series of discussions that we utilize to establish clear definitions and metrics about what actually equity means. And there's a variety of different things that equity must mean. And so we have to put those things on paper, prioritize them and have metrics around them, have a clear line of responsibility, have, for example, someone inside of government, at least half of whose job is to implement our equity plan, have a person designated inside each of the city's departments to be responsible for implementing uh, the city's equity plan in those departments. And then every single time we're considering an action, whether it's a personnel matter, whether it's a procurement matter with, with a, choosing a vendor, whether it's creating a new program, whether it's interacting with residents, whether it's passing a policy, we actually have to concretely assess it against these goals and then ask ourselves, is this an anti-racist policy or is it one that fails to meet our anti-racist um, uh, goals. And if it fails to meet those goals, just don't do it. 
Uh, and, and again, I think, I think uh, putting a level of concreteness and clarity around all this stuff so that it's not just a, a, a sort of high level value, but a concrete thing that we do on a daily basis is really, really critical. Uh, I think there's a lot of specific things that, that need to be changed. I mean, one, one example that I think really, really is obvious is, you know, things like equity in services, like, like equity in uh, lead testing of water to ensure that all communities have equal uh, confidence about the safety of the water they're drinking. Basics about infrastructure, right? So, so if you were to do an audit of all the sidewalks in Evanston, you would find that sidewalks are in worse shape in the fifth ward than in the sixth ward. And that impairs safety of older adults to walk and be mobile. It impairs neighborhood cohesion. It's a thing that sounds small, but is in fact big. And so I think as we are um, making these promises and claims about equity, we have to live them in every aspect of work that the city touches. I think that's how you rebuild trust. But the other way you rebuild trust is to bring people in the door to be a part of the decision-making process very early on, right? Don't wait for the, the up or down vote to be happening in 25 minutes and then have uh, people speak at public comment at city council after we already know what's gonna happen. That's, that's fine, but it doesn't solve the problem of people not feeling heard. Uh, to solve the problem of people not feeling heard, you have to invite them in the door in advance while the policymaking process is in its early stages. And then they have to see that their voices matter, right? And I think there's some confusion in this town between um, what's, I would say this, I think there's some people in this town who feel like the only way to make people feel like their voices matter is to give them everything they want. That's not true. You can disagree with someone and not be mostly persuaded by them, but still change your orientation a little bit, still change the way you think about issues a little bit, change your subsequent priorities a little bit, change the language you use a little bit. And people are smart, people see that, people understand that even if they didn't cause you to flip your position 180 degrees, they caused your thinking to evolve and your behavior to evolve. And then once they see that, they know that what they say matters, and then they're actually incentivized to participate more going forward to share their views more going forward. You can create a virtuous cycle. Whereas now I think we have a little bit of a vicious cycle where people are kind of written off and then they feel written off and they get angry, then their, their comments get less constructive and then the council feels even more justified in writing them off. And that causes real pain in our community. Yeah, and you mentioned um, and bringing people in from the process from the start. Um, and one, one concern that some residents have voiced is that um, the, diversifying of uh, city government and, and the staffing of it is not as, I guess, robust or, or not meeting the, the standards that we should set. And both in terms of, um, you know, racial diversity and, and gender diversity, but also in terms of the diversity of what wards we're pulling uh, folks from to, um, you know, be in this process and, and be involved. Um, You're talking about the city staff right now? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the city staff. Um, so where, where do you see that um, where, and where do you see that kind of diversifying of the staff being included in that? Yeah, you know, um, I interrupted you because you were talking about what wards the staff come from. I mean, how many of the staff are even from Evanston in the first place, right? And, and I think that um, I think we could do a better job um, of hiring more Evanstonians, not only because that's jobs for Evanstonians and keeping Evanston tax dollars in the city of Evanston, you know, we're also, we're not, we're not making widgets, we're serving human beings. And it is just 
natural that someone who lives here and knows the community as a resident has a leg up in terms of providing those services. So, so I think we could do a, a better job of having more Evanstonians in our, on our staff. Um, and I see that when we do have Evanstonians on our staff, it really helps. Um, and, and so I think we could, we could do better there. Um, I, I think that we have to do a better job of diversifying our, uh, our city uh, workforce, uh, as you say, across a number of different metrics and certainly race would be at the top of my list of the ways in which we need a more diverse uh, city workforce. I think part of that goes back to what I was saying before about you need to have an equity plan that is uh, pulled out and utilized every time you're making a decision, which includes every single time you're making a hiring or promotion or, or termination decision. I also think more transparency on this would be good. If you go to, I believe the city of Boston has a totally transparent dashboard online that shows uh, who makes up their city workforce. And so you can track it by department and wage and race. So not only to see what percentage of our total workforce is African-American, but what percent of the police department to give a you know, obvious example, but also what percent of the public works department is African-American and at what salary, right? Do we have people, of all, are, are, are uh, people of color, for instance, equally represented not only in the workforce, but in management level and, and high wage and high, um, high responsibility jobs. So I think a greater degree of transparency on this would be helpful as well. Um, both because it's just good for the public to know and also because, you know, I think uh, there's a sense that if you're being watched more closely, uh, you might be able to, you might be um, um, induced to step up even more in your, in your recruitment efforts. So turning now to kind of the uh, cultural zeitgeist uh, of the moment, uh, the COVID-19. Ah, yes, the cultural zeitgeist. Yeah, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we are nearly a year in at this point um, for yeah. the virus kind of locking down the United States and such. And um, a few other places too. A few other, yeah. Um, just recently, um, we, as a city, Evanston passed um, 100 residents who uh, have died from the virus. Yeah. Um, and my, my question to you would be, do you see um, bo both in a local context of, of Evanston in the Chicago area, but also now with a national context of a new administration uh, and new um, kind of plans going forward, do you see Evanston's plan as um, sufficing right now, or, or do you think that some changes need to be made going forward? Well, first of all, I think that we've, um, generally speaking, done a, a good job. Um, you know, the most important thing in this situation is to have a clear, sound, science-based plan and then communicate it with extraordinary regularity and precision so that people really understand what's going on. So people know what they're supposed to do, what they're not supposed to do and why, and they can predict how the policies are gonna change as the data changes. I think, I think our, our city's done a nice job of that. Um, obviously we're in the relatively early phases of vaccine distribution. Uh, we're in a, I would say a fortunate position as a relatively rare suburban community with a health department, uh, right? So if we were in Wilmette or Skokie, uh, it would be the Cook County Health Department responsible for distributing the vaccine, whereas here in Evanston, our health department is responsible for it. Um, I, look, obviously, like, there's a tremendous amount of anxiety around this in our community. I get a lot of complaints. People don't feel like they they know exactly where they stand or what's next. And I think we could, uh, you know, learn from that and do a, do an even better job in terms of of clarity about where people stand in line and when they can expect to have the opportunity to be to be vaccinated and so forth. I do think the city's taken important steps, right? They've, they've done a good job, I think, of publicizing the intake form they wanted people to fill out. So they have a lot of 
data from residents about who's in line for the vaccine and who wants it when and, and what various uh, um, conditions people have to help funnel people into particular uh, buckets. But, you know, this is life and death, right? The, the, the rate at which we vaccinate people and the order in which we vaccinate people is absolutely a life and death matter. And so I just think we need to be really, really, really clear in our communication and our information and absolutely as aggressive as possible about getting those vaccines into people as quickly as possible. And I do wanna end by saying that I think you're absolutely right. The change in administration is just beyond critical um, for everything. Um, both the immediate um, vaccine distribution policy and the COVID relief more broadly and also everything else. Um, I think the change in the Senate is really critical for COVID relief more broadly. I'm not sure how much of an immediate impact that will have on vaccine policy, um, but you know, um, I, I think it cannot be overstated how harmful it was to have a president who just didn't give a damn. Um, and, you know, we're already hearing reports, you know, what is it now? As the moment we're recording this, let's see, it's uh, 26 and a half hours into the Biden administration. We're already hearing reports that even from a baseline of low expectations, the Biden administration is shocked at just how little there was in place. Uh, so they're gonna have to move very, very, very fast, but it will clearly help. I mean, honestly, as, as, as sad as it is to say this, it will just help to have competent people trying hard uh, in terms of providing urgency, coordinating resources in a way that can only be done by a president. Uh, and then just also, again, clarity of communication and priorities and science. So the wider impact of COVID has been the economic disruption and um, kind of the precipice and balance that uh, people have had to be making um, both in terms of, you know, small businesses in the community and also just in terms of, of working class residents. Uh, and, and Evanston, uh, more in general, has uh, already, you know, historically had a, an affordable housing deficit, among other things. And, uh, and numerous, numerous residents now continue to sit on kind of that financial edge as we wear on through um, whatever shape recovery we happen to be in right now. Um, how do you see Evanston helping relieve these, these short-term disruptions and, and also strengthening support for these uh, vulnerable citizens more permanently going forward? Yeah, it's really terrible. And I, I would add to the uh, very uh, critical and accurate description you give of the economic uh, pain, uh, that there's been serious social consequences too. Uh, real isolation, especially for older adults and kids. Uh, it's, this, is, this has been very, very harmful. Um, I think that we have a lot of different tracks that we've got to act on. Part of it is just getting dollars in people's hands and small businesses' hands as fast as possible. And quite frankly, uh, that's, those are dollars that are not going to primarily come from the city's budget. So that has to be done in collaboration primarily with the federal government. Again, the uh, Senate elections in Georgia that, that handed Senate leadership to the Democrats will be nothing short of transformational in this respect. Um, we've got to work closely with Congresswoman Schakowsky and our, our senators, Durbin and Duckworth, to make sure that the, the relief that comes out of Washington is, is designed in a way that works for Evanston residents, Evanston businesses, and quite frankly, the city of Evanston itself, which also needs the help. Uh, so that's, that's one track. Um, one track is just doing the absolute best that we can in terms of coordinating the workforce development tools that we have in town, the educational tools that we have in town with the employers to connect people in a position of need 
to resources as fast as possible. Uh, you know, I think that again, the city is not going to be a massive um, service provider by itself, but we're in a community with a lot of service providers and the city is better positioned than anybody else to coordinate everybody together in one single effort to make sure that we're identifying people in need, identifying opportunities and connecting them instantaneously. Um, I also want to stress that, you know, the city can make, can uh, enact mitigation measures, you know, for instance, when the when the pandemic began, there was a 60 day shutdown, a 60 day moratorium on things like water shutoffs. Uh, I think we need to be looking at policies like that uh, just to make sure that the city itself through its policies isn't further uh, imperiling families who are economically living on the edge. Um, and then, uh, you know, I just think that you mentioned and it, it can't be overstated, uh, housing is a key, key part of this. And there's so much we need to do on the question of affordable housing through our uh, inclusionary zoning, inclusionary housing ordinance, through uh, reining in exclusionary zoning, through partnerships that bring in significant additional subsidy, working both with Cook County and the Illinois Housing Development Authority and especially the federal government. There's just a lot that must be done on, on housing. And I think the city needs to prioritize that because we have a real affordability. Um, a generous word would be problem and a, a blunter word might be crisis. So you mentioned this briefly um, before, but the city has obviously not been spared from, you know, the disruptions to the economy and, and revenues. Uh, in this this most recent budget that was passed by the council uh, was controversial in that it uh, included a, a uh, raise in the uh, city's property taxes. Um, and how how do you see, you know, like you said, in collaboration with with state and federal governments? Um, as well, how do you see kind of that balancing of the need for um, recovering revenues and, and closing that deficit with the community's concerns about, about raising taxes? Well, obviously nobody should wanna raise taxes during a pandemic, uh, you know, and, and um, unfortunately because of the state law and state constitution, the municipal government doesn't have a heck of a lot of tools. Um, and, and so the property tax is the natural place to go and it really impacts exactly the wrong people the, the most. Uh, and so, so I just think we need to be very, very, very cautious about that. We need to be as creative as we can about looking for other sources of revenue. Um, you know, there is plenty of affluence in this community and we need to be smart and creative about finding ways to bring in revenue that actually uh, is much cl more closely tied to actual ability to pay than is the property tax. Um, I think we need to look at really, we need to be honest about the fact that, you know, it's really popular to say, oh, we'll kind of cut the waste out of government and lay off a few people here and there and, and everything will be fine and no, no one will notice the difference. Actually, we've seen so much cutting to our municipal government uh, headcount that I don't think a lot of additional just kind of, you know, slice here, hack there is going to be um, doable in a way that doesn't hurt the city. Um, so instead, I think we need to be looking at aspects of the state, the city budget that could genuinely be uh, restructured in such a way as to provide a comparable or higher level of service at lower cost. And I think public safety is one area with tremendous opportunity where, you know, if you look at us compared to neighboring suburbs or, or peer communities, we've spent a tremendous amount of money. And I don't think we, we um, are doing things in the most, uh, most thoughtful possible way. The last thing I would say, and this sort of harkens back to some of what I said with, you know, workforce development and working with not only ETHS, but also Oakton and the Youth Job Center, is we've got to be focusing on expanding the, the circle of economic opportunity. Uh, and, and that is, of course, a, a fundamental 
humanitarian goal, but also it, it grows our tax base and expands our revenue as well. And so we just need to be thinking about that simultaneously as the right thing to do for people who are in need of support and also beneficial for the city's bottom line. So kind of tangentially related to this um, is the kind of relationship that exists between um, both the city of Evanston, um, the actual residents and the city of Evanston, the government and uh, Northwestern University. Um, obviously, Northwestern is a very central and critical part of the city, but some residents have raised concerns about uh, the university's influence over uh, town, you know, politics and activities, as well as investment from the university in uh, the city, whether that be um, actual and, you know, literal investment or just paying taxes. Um, where do you see, uh, to kind of use a, a, a kind of turn of phrase, the town-gown relationship uh, between Evanston and Northwestern uh, going? Well, it's really important. I, I would, you know, maybe this is a pipe dream, but I would always uh, love to just turn the heat down a little bit. You know, uh, I think the problems are real and important. I'll get to them in a second, but I, I do think it's important to name that we do need each other, right? There's no question that Northwestern needs Evanston. The, the school is not going anywhere. And, and, um, and, and, you know, sitting in the middle of the city of Evanston and, 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 um, if Evanston isn't doing well, that's harmful to Northwestern in very concrete ways. At the same time, I think that we need Northwestern, um, that, that for all the challenges that come with having as a neighbor, a giant um, university, the university brings people and um, cultural and intellectual vitality and, um, you know, frankly, a lot of taxpayers and economic activity too. So. So, you know, I think, I think it's helpful not to view the relationship as black and white. Um, but I, I do think that some of the concerns that people raise about Northwestern are totally legitimate. So for example, um, Northwestern not only is exempt by the Illinois constitution from paying property tax, but additionally, they are, you know, continually buying up more and more property and taking more and more property off the city tax rolls. It's understandable for me as a property taxpayer in Evanston to get concerned when that keeps happening because every time that happens my share my obligation to, to pay just goes up because somebody else's obligation went down to zero so that that's that's a concern that I think is very legitimate um, I think that people feel some frustration you look at peer private institutions in other parts of the country and a lot of them make payments in lieu of taxes or pilots that are, are much larger than the amount of money that uh, Northwestern pays to Evanston and and so the question is, could Northwestern do more and step up more? And, and uh, the answer that I would give is, is yes. And I think that Northwestern asks for a lot from Evanston, which is normal and appropriate. They're a giant institution doing a lot of stuff, but they ask for things around variances and around zoning and, and around permitting, especially around events. And, and you know, I think that in the moments that Northwestern comes to the city with these requests, we just need to be prepared to say, listen, we also have some needs from you. And let's sit down at the table and hammer out a better deal that works for you, that works for us, that doesn't leave us in as much of a financially precarious position. And will also improve the goodwill that will be beneficial to, to you in just carrying out your day-to-day -day business as an educational institution. And so, you know, I, I will approach that relationship in a spirit of uh, neighborliness and collaboration, and also with the view that Evanston has the right, I think, to have a greater degree of expectation from Northwestern uh, than we've typically had and, and to hopefully have those expectations met. Turning now to last section, uh, kind of 
couple more deeper questions here, uh, policing and, and public safety. Uh, so this past year, um, both just 2020 and, and uh, as well as the last decade, uh, have seen a, a, a new movement uh, with, with Black Lives Matter and with um, more recently the movement to uh, defund or in some uh, cases abolish the police. Uh, this is, um, you know, this, the, the largest protests most consistent were last summer, but there's still protests uh, to this day. And it continues to be a concern for a lot of people. Um, just, to, and, and we'll get more into, you know, specific questions of relationships with the police department and the community and the, and the uh, university, but just in general, uh, in a top-down view, as best as you can with, with a, a subject as broad as this, um, where do you see the need uh, or what, what needs do you see in Evanston um, with regards to policing, uh, with regards to specifically EPD, um, both in like a, a practice and a, a philosophy uh, uh, kind of lens? A, a broad, big, broad question, but I hope it uh, came across. Well, let me give an answer that at a very specific <clears throat> high register, and um, you can tell me if you want me to try something different. Um, my view is that a police officer is a very specialized type of city employee, has powers that no other city employee has, um, has powers that in my view, unfortunately are necessary in some circumstances, but also has powers that in my view are inappropriate for a lot of circumstances, right? You, there are a lot, of, a lot of problems that are not solved by showing up with a gun. In fact, there's a lot of problems that are made worse by showing up with a gun. And to me, the challenge is that over the course of the last really 50 years in American life, we have massively cranked up the number of problems to which we've decided that the solution is a guy with a gun. Um, that kind of mission creep, I think, has been bad for police. I think it has uh, put police in situations of being called upon to solve problems that are not the things they're, they're trained to best address. Um, it has driven up the cost of running uh, municipal government dramatically, and it is most of all harm the communities uh, whose problems are being solved in the wrong way or whose problems are attempted to be solved in the wrong way. And so what I would believe in doing is doing a full audit of what all the Evanston Police Department is engaged in with the goal of saying, what are the things that we in fact believe the police is currently doing that in fact, yep, those are things that we really want police with this training and this equipment and this set of legal uh, capabilities to go address. On the other hand, what are some things that we think that somebody else would better address uh, things like mental health crises, substance abuse challenges and more. And then third, is there an intermediate category of things that we'd like to see a police officer and someone else jointly address? Like for instance, uh, are there situations where someone is experiencing a mental health crisis and simultaneously might be a danger to themselves or others and you would like a co-response model of a police officer and a mental health uh, care worker to arrive together? And I think once you've said, okay, here's what we currently do that we think could better be done some other way. Here's what we currently do that we think needs to be done this way. Then you need to start building up the capacity to do that first category of stuff that ought to be done some other way properly. And that will probably mean expansion of certain types of capabilities in the city government and, and mental health service providers. Uh, and then you can start to deflect your calls so that you're responding to things more appropriately. And I, I think we're talking about a massive philosophical shift in how we think about public safety 
uh, and it's going to need to be done um, meticulously and carefully and uh, thoughtfully, um, which means not fast in the sense that we shouldn't expect to swear me in as mayor in May and be done with this project by August. On the other hand, we're going to have to move swiftly to get to a place where the actual changes ever uh, can come into effect. And so I think this is gonna be a really critical focus of the next four years. So kind of touching on that, um, how you put it into, into practice and how these, um, these things are really done concretely, um, a, a criticism that a lot of people have had over the last decade about uh, police reform is that, um, you know, components like whether it's it's uh, body worn cameras or diversity uh, and, and implicit bias training, while the intention behind them are good and that, you know, you're trying to change the practices of the police and um, make them, you know, less, less violent, less forceful and, and more equitable to the community. Things like that ultimately do raise the uh, budget of the police and they raise the uh, kind of capacity of the police to and I'm, I'm getting into the weeds a little bit here, but um, kind of deflect the criticisms that might come their way. Like, oh, we have these cameras now, we have this training now. Um, and, and you talked, you kind of touched on like alternatives to uh, policing and 911 calls, how, um, you know, you may send uh, someone without a police officer, like a mental health care worker, or just someone there uh, with a police officer, kind of as that dual approach you talked about. All of this is to say, when this goes into practice, do you see these shifts happening outside of the umbrella of the Evanston Police Department? Um, and, and obviously there would be collaboration there, but how could you kind of gain that trust of, we're not just giving more resources to the police to reform them again when that hasn't worked in the past, but we're creating something new uh, outside of them? Well, first of all, I do want to be clear about the fact that I think you're painting with a broader brush than I would. Um, I think there are, for example, your two, your two examples were things like diversity training and body cameras. The data on diversity training is not, not hot, right? Like it really seems like a lot of diversity training doesn't work. Uh, and the reason one might hypothesize is that a day long training or even uh, one day a month for a year long training uh, has to be unbelievably well-designed and then integrated into everything else you do if it's going to reverse a century of culture, right? On the other hand, it's very obvious um, from the, you know, the, I don't know, the response in Chicago to the Laquan McDonald murder, for example, not to mention what's happened across the country, the body cameras, uh, can actually play a very meaningful role toward achieving accountability. And so I, I, think, I think it's important to ask the question that you asked about like, wait a second, what should happen if we're gonna change a bunch of stuff, how much of that should happen inside the police department and how much should happen somewhere else? That's a great question, I'm gonna answer it in a second, but I wouldn't wanna accept the premise that every change that ever happens in the police department is useless uh, because fundamentally, that's just not the case. And, and I think we have to be willing to do useful things inside the police department, even if some people are skeptical about anything that results in increasing that budget. So I just wanted to be very direct about that distinction. Um, I think it is very, very 
I think the question you ask is difficult. And, and there's a couple different models I could imagine moving forward with. Um, however, I think it is important to have as a fundamental tenet that we're not just going to install a bunch of new capabilities inside the police department and call it a day. Uh, because I do think there is a need to set up institutions with fundamentally different culture, uh, a different kind of orientation than is traditional in police departments. And the police department is so well established and its culture is so strong that there is a very significant risk of no matter what you put in there, it will be absorbed by the dominant prevailing culture. And, and so we're talking about setting up um, service capabilities and response capabilities in, this, in the city uh, that will have a different culture. If we wanna guarantee success, we've gotta set it up somewhere else. Uh, so that's a, that's a sort of basic bottom line that I bring to the conversation. Kind of going back a little bit to where we were talking about uh, the university, um, something that is kind of unique to college towns, um, but also could be, you know, it could also be applied to how CPD, Chicago Police and Evanston Police interact, is that there's, there's different layers of, of police departments and police organizations that operate within Evanston, like in other towns. So you have the Municipal Police, Evanston Police Department, um, you have Northwestern's Police Department, which is a private police force that has the public power, but it's defined by this uh, um, agreement of cooperation between the city and the university to have these boundaries of jurisdiction. And then um, this is where I'll bring them in is um, with certain situations, whether it be um, something in need of, of a SWAT uh, type response or uh, a protest and, and uh, riot control, there is this outside group that we've learned about called the Northern Illinois Police Alarm System. Um, and they've been brought in and they've been invited in to operate. And so there's different layers of uh, policing going on in these communities. And some of it has the effect of, um, you know, a higher concentration of policing happening in certain areas, like with downtown, uh, you know, around Sherman uh, or Sheridan Road, rather, you have the overlapping jurisdictions of EPD and NUPD. Hmm. Um, and how do you how do you see those different layers of uh, jurisdictions and different layers of police organizations fitting into uh, kind of the broader push for a, a more equitable uh, public safety model? Well, I think that it poses some risks. Um, I think one basic principle that I've already alluded to, but I think I'll be more precise about it is police have a very remarkable form of power. Um, again, there's nobody else, you know, if you, if you call the water department to deal with a water problem, they're not gonna show up with a gun and a badge and the right to take you away and place you under arrest and lock you in a cage, right? The parks department doesn't, doesn't have those powers, but the police do. And with that kind of power comes a very special form of responsibility. Um, the first form of responsibility, of course, needs to be transparency. Um, and, you know, there is a fundamental difference between this transparency imposed on the EPD and the transparency imposed on NUPD, um, which I think is outrageous. Uh, and so uh, I, I remember back in Springfield talking about trying to pass legislation to, to impose, impose that kind of re requirement on uh, private university police uh, departments. And I, I think it's still something that we ought to push uh, strongly for 
uh, with our uh, allies in the legislature. And if, if um, they're not able to pass that, then to, to make that be one of the uh, requests that we bring to the university, uh, because that that's just, that's common sense to me. Um, you know, I think that a level of coordination, not only on the tactical level, but on a strategic and values level is really critical, right? If Evanston police are committed to reversing inequities and uh, racial inequities in traffic stops, for instance, uh, and NUPD are doing something different when it comes to, to traffic stops, that's, that's a problem. And so I think we need to demand that level of coordination on the strategic level to make sure that our goals and values are aligned. Um, and I think the same is true of NIPIS, you know, um, I think, a, a, you know, a total transparency about who's coming into this town and why and under whose command are they and what are they doing when here um, is, is important. And I, as long as residents feel like it's possible that a sort of a unidentifiable police officer from God knows where may show up and, and um, be able to exert influence over Evanstonians, that's that's going to create a real trust problem. And so we need to make sure that the transparency policies around NIPIS are consistent with the trust that we're trying to build with our community. And so last last question about this and, and last of the interview, um, kind of the, the big money question, um, you know, with Evanston Police Department, um, in this most recent budget, there was a um, a reduction in uh, staffing levels. It, it was kind of, it was a little odd because they were there were 11 positions that weren't being filled, um, but the change was that they were made uh, permanently gone away. Um, and that that is a, a kind of step in, in more permanently reducing the size of the police department. Um, but moving, moving forward beyond the kind of political moment we find ourselves in long-term, where do you see kind of the, tr the the size of the police department needs to go. Do you, do you see um, defunding or, or reduction in size as necessary? Um, or do you think that those other solutions that we've talked about with, you know, building resources outside of it, do you think that will be enough without a, an explicit reduction? Well, you know, as I've indicated, I think it's really important to do a community-wide audit of what all the police are doing uh, and and really come to determination of what they do and don't need to be doing among that before you, you put a number on this. And I think it'd be really irresponsible to put a number on this. What I do think is very clear is that we're asking the cops to do a lot of stuff that should be asked of somebody else, that it is not fair to the police to ask them to do. It's not their core training uh, and that it winds up creating both distrust and a lower quality of service provided to the community. And so as a result, I'm confident in saying that we can be spending less on the police than we currently are. Um, because that's, that's, that's a sort of qualitative fact that's visible to me. Uh, but the quantitative assessment of what is the exact right number is one that I think it would be a real mistake to pretend I could give you with, with confidence at this moment. All right, uh, that was all the questions I had. So thank you so much and um, appreciate your time for the interview. Thank you, really enjoy the questions. From Evanston, this is Alex Harrison, WNUR News.